to Acts chapter 22. For those of you who are visiting, we believe that scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the inspired and errant and authoritative word of the true and living God. And it is our practice typically to preach through books of the Bible, and so we are working our way through Acts, and we come this week to Acts chapter 15. Please hear the word of God. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and that all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And I will uh, just end right there and we'll pick up with this passage next week. Let's pray.
Father, as we have read your word, and as we see the church um, going about their business, making uh, decisions regarding uh, things that are so central to their faith, Father, I pray that you would help us to learn from them. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but um, I'm going to ask this by way of introductory comments. How many of you know why we call ourselves Presbyterians? Or if you know that we call ourselves Presbyterians because it describes our type of church government, how many of you can explain Presbyterian church government? Now in saying this, I I have to, to say don't worry. I am not going to be given a theological defense of Presbyterian church government this morning and, uh, and make it pose as a sermon. Personally, I would immensely enjoy giving a theological defense of, uh, of, of Presbyterian church government, but I think it would bore you to death. And my job as a minister of Jesus Christ is not to point you to any type of church government. My job is to point you this morning to Jesus Christ. So we are going to be looking at Jesus Christ this morning and His care for the church after several intense gazes or glances maybe at Christ's prescriptions on how his church is to function as it goes through the decision-making process. And I've given you a detailed outline to help you follow as we go along. Here's the issue at hand. Paul and Barnabas had just finished their uh, first missionary journey, and uh, then they returned to Antioch. The last verse of chapter 14 says that they remained no little time with the disciples in Antioch. So they stayed there a long time. And while they were there, some disciples came down from Jerusalem. Now, if you know your geography, um, they were going north from Jerusalem up to Antioch. But in the Jewish way of thinking, because Jerusalem was higher in its geography than Antioch, then they considered them as going down. So... Uh, they thought in terms of elevation rather than in north, south, um, east, and west. So anyway, these uh, people came down from Jerusalem and they began teaching, as it says in verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Remember how the Christians in Jerusalem Uh, going back to Acts 7 and 8, how they were persecuted uh, by the Jews and they fled from Jerusalem, they fled out to the outlying areas of Judea. Some of the Christians in Jerusalem fled all the way to Antioch and that's how the church in Antioch started. It's these churches who had fled because of the persecution. Well, I think probably what happened 
as it says, these brothers came from Judea and doesn't specifically say that they came from Jerusalem. What happened, I think, is these were some of the Christians, the new Christians who fled from Jerusalem out to uh, the outlying areas of Judea. And now the persecution is caught up with them there. And so they are fleeing again and they arrive in Antioch. They join the, the church there and they become appalled that there are Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus and they are not required to keep the customs of Moses. Particularly, they are not required to be circumcised. So, what they decide to do is they decide, well, we need to fix this situation. So they set themselves up as authorities, as teachers in the church, to set everybody straight. And apparently they were pretty hardened in their position that you needed to be circumcised in order to be saved because they would not back down when Paul and Barnabas um, challenged them. You know, every church from time to time gets people who think that they're smarter than everybody else in the church and they have their pet issue And they are eager to start teaching their pet issue, eager to start making whatever it is that they think is important the focus of the church. And so uh, there's a typical strategy I've noticed over the years that what they'll do is they try and cozy up to the pastor, try and uh, become the pastor's best friend in order that they can get the pastor in their corner. Uh, And then after the pastor is firmly in their corner, they start stirring up. Um, their mischief by their teaching. And I want to warn you, always be on the watch out for these types of people. Well, how did the church respond to these new brothers who have come into the church and are teaching that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved? Well, look at verses 2 and 3. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, and I thought that was understatement. I would have thought I would have thought it would have read after Paul and Barnabas got in their face. Um, so I went back and read it in the in the Greek, and and it's translated word for word. It really is. Um, um, Doctor Luke, when he wrote the Book of Acts, he he stated it in these negative terms. And so kind of put an understatement there. There was no small dissension and debate from Paul and Barnabas. And so um, what, what happens then is that um, after this debate, I think that the church really could have won the debate at that point. Paul and Barnabas could have carried the day. Um, that seems evident. However... Because the church knows that this is such an important issue that uh, they decided not to settle the issue uh, there in the local church with Paul and Barnabas. But rather, they charged Paul and Barnabas along with some of the other elders to go down to Jerusalem and bring the issue to the apostles and the elders. And the early church... Uh, had a, a strong sense of being a connectional church. Each church was not its own uh, final authority. So they had this controversy in their church. And instead of looking in, instead of the elders there of that church 
thinking of themselves as the, the court of final appeal, they say, let's go down and see the apostles and the other elders down in Jerusalem. So they were connectional. And uh, they also, as I already mentioned, they had this sense that they were not their own final authority. That's an amazing thought to me. Paul and Barnabas did not consider themselves to be the final authority. Paul, who had seen the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. Paul, who was getting from time to time direct revelations from the Lord Jesus Christ, apparently. Um... We don't, I don't know if he was getting them prior to this, but as you move through the book of Acts, the Lord Jesus does give him um, direct revelation. Don't get off the ship. Remember when it was, when it was being tossed in the storm, uh, Jesus uh, said to Paul. But anyway, here's Paul and Barnabas, and they don't consider themselves the final authority. However, they are quite, cor- they are quite certain that they are correct in this controversy. There's no hesitation in their mind. They know that they are right uh, when they are opposing these these false teachers. Yet they submit themselves to the oversight of the church. And they consent to being part of a delegation. Not being the delegation, but part of a delegation uh, from the Antioch church. And then they're willing to submit themselves uh, to, to the brothers in Jerusalem. And before they got to Jerusalem, as they traveled down, which is really south, I'm sorry, they traveled up to Jerusalem, as it says in the text, which was really south. Um, I, I love what they did. They went to every Christian outpost between Antioch and Jerusalem. And they stopped and they told those people how, what God was doing amongst the Gentiles. In other words, this is what I like about this. They were on their way to Jerusalem because they have this issue. The church has said, this issue needs to be resolved. And instead of being cautious and saying, well, this issue is not resolved yet, so we're not going to speak of it. All the way down to Jerusalem, they spoke of it. They said, look at what God is doing amongst the Gentiles and how he has provided free uh, salvation Uh, to the Gentiles. Uh, So the very issue that they were being sent to Jerusalem to settle is already settled in their minds and they are spreading it everywhere. And apparently when they got to Jerusalem, the church there didn't seem to be in much doubt about this issue either. It says um, in verse 4 that the church in Jerusalem welcomed the delegation from Antioch and they heard with joy all that God was doing amongst the Gentiles. And so there's a lot of rejoicing, but in the midst of this uh, jubilation, a group of former Pharisees uh, who had become believers rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And this is a throwaway comment. It's just one of those things that I wonder as I'm studying the passage. As this was a group of Pharisees who had become believers, I just wonder if Nicodemus was amongst this group. Because he was a Pharisee. Or whether he was um, was not amongst this group. So um, I always get interesting uh, answers back from you in the congregation when I throw these little thoughts out. So I appreciate that. Um, if you have any thoughts on the matter, anyway, they get down there. 
the issue is here, and this is where it gets interesting, um, because both apostles and elders gather together to consider the matter. What's surprising to me is not just the apostles. You see that? It's not just the apostles that have gathered together to consider this matter. The apostles plus the elders of the church. And they had much debate. Well, let me back up one second and say that what I think this teaches us is there is a distinction of function between the apostles and the elders. But there's not a distinction of hierarchy. Um, In churches that practice a, 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 a government where there's a hierarchy uh, of power, you have the more powerful people telling uh, the people under them what they can do as a church and who they can hire. But here, in Acts chapter 15, you have the apostles and the elders standing side by side considering the matter before them. That's exactly what it says in verse 6. They were all considering the matter. In verse 7, they encouraged debate. They had much debate. They had elders debating apostles. They had elders debating elders. They may even have had elder, I mean, apostles debating apostles here in what I'm calling a presbytery meeting. And I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek. But you know what the word elder is in Greek? It's the Greek word presbyter. So that's why I am tongue-in-cheek calling it the first presbytery meeting. I believe that this debate and and most of this this discussion was not over whether they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. I think that was a pretty well settled issue, certainly in Paul and Barnabas and in Peter's mind and in most of the church's mind. I think the debate and the discussion was... We've got a serious issue here. How do we have Jews who have been steeped in these in in the customs uh, of being Jewish, living side by side as brothers um, in Christ in the same church with these Gentiles who are strangers to these um, customs and 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 to circumcision? How how are we going to? to have the Jews and the Gentiles coexist together? How are they going to be able to share a common life in the church and reflect that love for Jesus, that, I mean that love for each other that, that, that shows that uh, Jesus Christ indeed is the Lord? And I'm going to address that in two weeks. Um, in my sermon two weeks from now. Next week I'm going to address how they how they save the gospel. So I'm not um, I'm not addressing that issue right now, but really just addressing the, the decision making process of the church. So after much debate, they also heard some testimonies. Uh, the apostle Peter stands up. And he reminded everyone, going back, remember, to Acts 10 and 11, how God had used him to lead Cornelius and his household to faith in Christ. And after Peter had spoken, then Paul and Barnabas got up, and they related how God had used them on their first missionary journey to bring many Gentiles to faith, even though the Gentiles did not get circumcised. But notice here that the debate is still going on. The final word has not been spoken. They've debated. They've given testimonies. 
Peter has given a testimony. Paul and Barnabas have given a testimony. But it has not settled anything. As authoritative as Peter and Paul and Barnabas were, as compelling as their, their testimonies were, the issue had not been settled. Our only rule for faith and practice is the Word of God. Peter and Paul are standing up and giving their testimonies of what God had done. And it was a true testimony of what God had done. But they're not appealing to Scripture. And so James, the brother of Jesus, stands up. And he explained from the Scriptures that God would bring the Gentiles to Himself. You see how he quotes here? Uh, in verses 16 through 18 uh, from the, the Old Testament, all of a sudden, the issue is settled. James to, appeals to Scripture and, and seems to settle the matter. And after the matter is settled, then he says, well, okay, now what should we do? Look at verses 19 through 21. Therefore, James said, My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What this amounts to in verses 19 through 21 is a compromise. I'll explain exactly what this compromise is in a couple of weeks. But suffice it to say that we have these apostles who from time to time were getting direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. That they are coming to a compromise. They reached a decision in this compromise that has concern for the gospel that has concern for the Gentiles who are young in their faith, and also has concern for the Jewish Christians who are struggling with the Gentiles' uh, freedom. And they came to this compromise after much debate. I'm really tempted to go down a a rabbit trail and talk about um, the, the, the weakness that our nation is facing right now in the intransience um, of our political leaders uh, and how um, it seems that that compromise that benefits all concerned uh, are impossible. I'm going to resist that. I'm going to stay focused on the text. In fact, I want to refocus us on the text. Look at verse 22. Note especially the wording that it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church. Um, The apostles and elders, they went through their debate. They didn't leave their decision there. They, They took it then to the whole church. And as I studied that this week, I just it was an area of repentance for me. I need to do a better job of communicating with you what is happening amongst the leadership of the church. And so um, please know that 
that I am taking that um, personally before the Lord and, and want to do a much better job of that. And I know that our leaders do as well. Also, continue to look at verse 22. They sent a delegation back to Antioch with the settled decision. They finally sent the delegation back to Antioch after making this decision. And the decision, however, is not a top-down decision. Barnabas, Paul, and the elders of the church were involved in the debate. They were involved in the decision-making process. And uh, it was not just a top-down where the apostles are telling the church what to do. I think this is a healthy way, as I conclude, a healthy way for the church to conduct themselves. No one is lording themselves over each other. First Peter chapter 5 says that... Uh, that we are uh, to be the servants of those whom, uh, over whom God has placed us in leadership. The leadership is a shared leadership. They, they also seem to avoid all, the, all manner of church politicking. They brought the issue, they discussed the issue, they debated the issue, they looked to the scriptures and they said, What does the scripture say? And they made their decision. And so it's a healthy way for a church to conduct itself. It's also a surprising way for Jesus Christ to conduct his church. Jesus put his, his church here on earth. And then he entrusted the help and the leadership of the church into the hands of men. That is an amazing thought to me. Sinful men. Fallible men. He he entrusted the church that he purchased with his own blood into men. Into the hands of men. Yet that power is not excessively consolidated. Because the real power in the church is Jesus Christ. And he rules his church by his word. When Jesus says that we are to be faithful to the Great Commission, there's no room for debate. We can talk about how we're going to do it. We've got to be faithful. Because all the real power in the church is consolidated only in Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. And as... I've already said, he rules the church by his word. He rules his church by his spirit. And he uses men to carry out um, his wishes. And finally, lastly, the church will always face challenges that will threaten its very existence. Here's the church in Antioch. They're rolling right along. They have their own challenges. Remember they were exiled from Jerusalem. They couldn't rent a U-Haul to take their possessions. They left everything. And yet they've got the joy of the Lord. They are sending Paul and Barnabas out to do missions. They are excited at hearing the reports. And all of a sudden, these brothers show up. 
You've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. And they throw the, the church into confusion. I started thinking through the Old Testament. God creates Adam and Eve. They fall into sin. God provides a Redeemer. All the way through the, the Old Testament, it looks as if God's people are going to be snuffed out and God provides a way out. Through the New Testament, God's people face persecution, face hardship, uh, face temptation, and God provides a way out. I know that many of you feel exactly like that. I know that many of you feel boxed in by life. Feel um, weak and vulnerable by the hardships and persecutions and sicknesses and, and, and illnesses and, and weakness and, and frailty. Jesus Christ is in heaven. And He is not disinterested in the church. Nor is He disinterested in any person for whom He shed His blood. He will be faithful to you even when you are faithless. The book of Timothy tells us. I'm just struck right at this moment. Paul told that to Timothy because Timothy was struggling. Just like we struggle. Paul knew that God would be faithful because God was faithful to him even when he was faithless. Jesus Christ He is on the march He is spreading His kingdom Through the preaching of the gospel He is caring for His people Through the ministry of the church And through the ministry of His Spirit In His people's lives Take up your cross And follow Him For His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He will lead you beside the still waters, even when you feel as if you were walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus Christ saved his church here in Acts 15 when they felt like, when it seemed like the gospel was going to be stolen from them. And He will keep your life. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank You that we can lean upon You when we have nothing else uh, in this life to lean upon. Father, I pray first of all for those who are like Samson, who have never leaned upon You. And when life is squeezed so um, dramatically that they can do nothing but call upon You. Father, I pray that You would, would bring those people to that point, if need be, if they have never called upon You. Father, for those in, the, in our congregation who have tasted and who have seen that the Lord is indeed good and who have uh, relied on Him many times in the past and 
are having a difficult relying on Him now, I pray that You would draw near to them. Remind them of Your faithfulness. Father, for us as a church, help us to remain committed to Jesus and to His Word and to rely on His Spirit and go wherever He takes us, knowing that it will not always be pleasant, but knowing that the gates of hell cannot stand against us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.